All right. So we're in Revelation chapter 19. We're turning the corner now. We've had all these chapters of doom and gloom and judgment and all that kind of stuff. And now we come to the second coming. So we're going to cover it over a couple of weeks. There's a lot in here to be glad about and to rejoice over. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord Father, thank you for everything that you have done for us. Lord, we know that you will keep your promises. And this is one of the promises that you will keep. Lord, the rapture of the church first, and then the revelation of the Antichrist, or the revealing of the Antichrist, and then the seven years of tribulation and judgment on this earth, as you are in heaven undoing the the scroll, the title deed of the earth, in preparation for you to come back and claim what is legally yours, what you bought with your blood. Lord, you redeemed us, not just the earth, but the people on the earth by your blood. And so we're so thankful for that. And Lord, this is a time in the future when all the judgments are completed, the enemies are defeated, and you come back to claim what is yours. And we come with you and we rule and reign with you for a thousand years until the end of the millennial period and then there's new heavens and new earth and we have eternity with you in glory. So we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. And we just look forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the climax. This is the second coming. Everything's been pointing to this moment. If you go back through previous chapters, the angels are saying, so-and-so was defeated and this is happening. Well, it hadn't happened yet. But the promise was so sure that it was as if it had happened. Because when God says something, because he's in control and because he can't lie, it has to happen. So the structure of the book of Revelation is that chapter 1 is the revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is and his glory. And then chapters 2 and 3 is the church on earth, and you've got the seven stages of church history and represented by the seven churches there in chapters 2 and 3. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, you have come up here. It's speaking of, I believe, the rapture. And so at the end of the church age, at the end of chapter 3, chronologically speaking, the church is taken up and we are in heaven with Jesus with the Lamb. And then in chapter 5, we are there witnessing the scroll being handed from the Father to the Son. And that is the title deed to the earth. So Jesus, when he redeemed the earth, when he died on the cross, he bought back the title deed. Adam forfeited the ownership of the earth, the title deed of the earth. He gave up his dominion of the earth, and gave it to Satan. And that's why Satan is the prince of the power of the air at this moment. Now, the battle has been won, but Jesus hasn't quite yet come back to claim his purchased possession. So, he will come back to take possession of the earth which he has already bought 2,000 years ago. So, in the scroll, in this title deed, Chapters 
6 through 18 outline their sequential seal, trumpet and bowl judgments. So they're like telescopic, the, the seventh seal judgment unfolds and becomes the seven trumpet judgments and the seventh trumpet judgment then became the seven bowl judgments. Now they've all been poured out onto the earth. And just to remind you, those who dwell on the earth, it's used about eight times through the book of Revelation. It always refers to the unbelievers and it speaks of their heart because they've made this world system their home. They find their satisfaction, they find everything they need in this world system. And the Bible calls them those who dwell on the earth, those who are at home on the earth. On the other hand, we should not be at home on the earth, right? We should be seeking the heavenly city, not an earthly one. So, there's been all this judgment. Is that fair? Yes. Sin must be punished. Those who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers who killed and persecuted God's people, must themselves be persecuted and killed. They will get their just and fair reward. And in Revelation 6.10, the tribulation saints prayed for God's recompense. He prayed for them to avenge them for the suffering that they were put through. And here, their prayers are answered. So, I just want to go through some of the different groups of beings or people in heaven because as we read through it's going to mention them so it's good to know prior to reading it who these people are I think it just makes it make more sense so in Revelation chapter 5 verse 11 it says then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands so this is before the start of the tribulation is after the end of the church age and before the start of the tribulation. It's in that small gap there. Jesus hasn't quite opened the scroll and started opening the seals yet. And we have the many angels, the living creatures, the four living creatures, and we have the elders. So let's talk about the angels first. These are the angels that stayed faithful to God when Satan rebelled. And remember when he rebelled, he took one-third of the angels with him. They all rebelled together. One-third of the angels rebelled against God. But the rest of them, the other two-thirds, the majority, they go between heaven and earth as commanded by God, and they are assigned to serve believers. So Matthew 18.10 says, Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, speaking of new believers in Christ. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. So each one of us as a believer has an angel looking over us, looking after us. And Hebrews 1.14 Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. So you've heard that idea of having a guardian angel, it's basically true. And they appear before God in heaven. So when we speak badly of another believer or when we cause another believer to trip up, the angel reports that <laughs> to the Lord in heaven. That's what it says there in, in Matthew 18.10. Beware that you don't look down, you don't put down any of these little ones. 
And then we have the four living creatures. And these are amazing and mysterious angels. And very wise, as indicated by their many eyes, covered in eyes. And they're always associated with the presence of God. Now, you'll find them mentioned in Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 3, and also in Ezekiel. They're always, as I said, connected with the intimate presence of God. They're always close to the throne. And the main function seems to be to emphasize the holiness of God and to praise Him. So just a couple of verses from Revelation 4, which describes them. So verses 6 through 8. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So that's basically the angels in heaven. There's different groups of angels, different ranks of angels. So that's the angelic host we've kind of represented there. And now we start talking about people. We start talking about what people are in heaven. So the 24 elders. So I believe the 24 elders represent the church in heaven, the glorified church in heaven. So again, in chapters 2 and 3, we have the church age. And then chapter 4, verse 1, come up here and speaks of, I believe, the rapture. And so basically the church is taken up at the end of the church age and before the start of the tribulation. So I'm just going to go through why I believe the 24 elders represent the church in heaven. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So. First question, why 24 thrones? Well, starting from the time of King David, he organized the priests into 24 courses or divisions, and you'll find that in First Chronicles 24. We are kings and priests. It says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, he has made us kings and priests to God. So we are organized in heaven into 24 courses or divisions. And the white robes represent Christ's righteousness, the garments of salvation. So we are found in Christ, not having any righteousness of our own. And you can look up Isaiah 61.10 and Matthew 22.11-13 in your own time to check that out. And then the crowns of gold. At the Bema Seat Judgment, we are going to be rewarded and I don't have time to go into it now, we've done it before, but in the New Testament there's many crowns which are described. And depending on our service, depending on our faithfulness, we will receive one or more of those crowns. So moving on to still talking about the 24 elders, I'm just going to read something from Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. And it says, And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain 
and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So again, Revelation 1.6, he has made us kings and priests to our God. And in Revelation 1.6, it's talking obviously to the church. So here it's repeating that and this is the church in heaven saying, thank you for making us kings and priests to our God. See, the angels weren't redeemed. The angels will never be redeemed. And Israel is not the nations. Israel is Israel. So this is talking about the Gentiles. This is talking about the Gentile church. And yes, there are Jews in the church. But overall, the church represents the Gentiles. So redeem us to God by your blood and from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now, the other thing that it says there is that we have bowls full of incense. So that speaks of intercessory prayer and worship, so that's what a priest does. And then there's also the singing and praising. That's another role of a priest, is to sing and praise. So in heaven, we will be fulfilling the role of a priest. We will be praying, people and we will be worshipping so that's what we'll be doing in heaven if you're wondering about that okay the next group of people that are on the scene yet they come on the scene during the tribulation and the reason is that they're not saved yet and they're not killed yet it's during the tribulation that these tribulation believers this harvest of souls, this amazing revival that happens worldwide where people from every tongue, nation, people group, a language, maybe even a billion, I don't know, but it says a number that cannot be counted will come to know Christ. But many will be killed. In fact, most of them will be killed. And so what we have in heaven is the martyrs from the tribulation, the believers who died, who are killed during the tribulation because of their faith, because of their faith in Jesus. So I'm just going to read from Revelation 7, 9 to 17. And it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, Remember, that's Christ's righteousness. With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. So I just want to point out here that in addition to this great multitude, which we'll find out comes out of the tribulation, we also have all the angels, we have the elders, and we have the four living creatures. So it makes up these four groups that we'll find in heaven. Two groups of angels and two groups of people. And it continues in verse 12 saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders, that's someone from the church, saying to me, 
Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and will serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Who is this great multitude? They are the ones who are killed or martyred during the Great Tribulation uh, from among all the nations. Now, what are they doing? So just to explain what they're doing as we start getting into chapter 19, they're singing hallelujah. This great multitude, these martyred saints from the Tribulation, they were the ones who directly suffered in those seven years from the atrocities committed by the Mystery Babylon religious system and also the Babylon economic system, both of them based in Rome. So it's the kingdom of the Antichrist. And we've just studied in the last few weeks of how God judged the Babylon religious system and the Babylon commercial system. And here they are saying hallelujah, which means praise the Lord, because God has judged these two world systems which have persecuted and killed the people of God. So the word hallelujah, it's only used here in the New Testament is borrowed from the Old Testament and it's a compound word made up of two words hallelujah meaning to praise joyously not just to praise but praise joyously and Yah is a shortened form of the unspoken name of God like Yahweh or Jehovah so this hallelujah is an instruction or command to the listener or congregation to sing tribute to the Lord again it's used nowhere else in the New Testament so it says to praise the Lord and stuff in other parts of the New Testament, but here is the only place we have this hallelujah, where it says praise joyously. So it signifies that God's people rejoice without restraint at his victory over the Mystery Babylon religion and the Mystery Babylon commercial system. And a bit after that, which we'll get more into next week, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you need to kind of have this picture in heaven. It's not just praise. It's not an ordinary day in heaven. This is the climax of heaven's praise. This is like a crescendo. It's like heaven is just exploding with joy, exuberance, and great expectation over what is about to happen next. So here are the three reasons Revelation gives as to why heaven is in such a joyous uproar. So hallelujah! Shouts the great multitude, as this is the people out of the tribulation, I believe, as they rejoice that God has judged the great harlot, the mystery Babylon religious system that corrupted the earth with their lies, false gospel, false worship, and murderous treatment of the saints. Then, hallelujah, shouts the great multitude, again, as they rejoice that God has judged and destroyed the evil world system, the Babylon commercial system. And then all of heaven joins in a few verses later and they are all rejoicing 
that the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So not only is Jesus about to take back the earth for himself, but we, the church, are coming to the final stage of our marriage to Christ. We'll talk more about the marriage to Christ next week. So let's read the whole chapter. We'll get the context of it all, and we'll see how it all works out. So, Revelation 19, 1-21. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Remember, that's most likely the tribulation saints who are martyred. Saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honour and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. Remember, that means sexual immorality, but it's applied to spiritual immorality, the worship of false gods, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Verse 3, again they said, same people speaking here, the tribulation martyrs, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And that's speaking of the commercial system, the destruction of the commercial system. Verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah, Amen, you spent, so be it, I agree. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters, and as a sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, let us be glad, and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell down at his feet, to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that ye may eat 
the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And also the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies. So the beast is the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth represent those ten kings that we talked about previously. And their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So who's sitting on the horse? It's Jesus, right? And against his army is, is us. Okay, We come back with him. Then the beast, the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So a quick comment on the sword. It's not literally a sword, I believe. In the scriptures, you interpret the signs. The signs have a literal meaning. It's the word of God. He speaks, and they die. He can speak things into existence, and he can speak things out of existence. He's not making them disappear. He's speaking, and they just break apart. Their bodies just break apart. It's, it's pretty um, gruesome. So let's go back to verse 1. It says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So this is not just the seven years. This is going way back. But this is talking quite clearly about the Mystery Babylon religious system because in chapter 17 it talks about the great harlot, the woman, whereas the commercial system is described as being a city, not a woman. So in verse 1 it says, after these things. So this is a sequential or chronological account. Both the Babylon religious system and the Babylon commercial system at this point have been destroyed. So we are right at the second coming of Christ. Everything's ready for him to come back. And I imagine this praise that we spoke about before is happening just before as we get on our white horses and are just about to ride <laughs> back down to earth. So it's like a victory parade. The battle was won on the cross and now Jesus is coming back to claim what is rightfully his. So here's a quote from J. Vernon McGee. Chapter 19 marks a dramatic change in the tone of Revelation. The destruction of Babylon, that's Rome, the capital of the beast or Antichrist kingdom, marks the end of the Great Tribulation. The somber gives way to song. The transfer is from darkness to light, from black to white, from dreary days of judgment to bright days of blessing. This chapter makes a definite bifurcation, that means breaking the two parts, in Revelation, and ushers in the greatest event for this earth, the second coming of Christ. It is the bridge between the Great Tribulation and the Millennium, the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And 
in verse 1 and verse 4, it says, a great multitude in heaven. So back in Revelation 7, 9-14, it talked about these martyred saints. And they cried out for God's righteous judgment in chapter 6, verse 10. And here, their prayer is finally answered. And there's a quote from a guy called Valvord talking about this great multitude and why it most likely represents specifically those martyred tribulation saints. So the reference to great multitude is to the same group as in chapter 7 verse 9 where a great multitude is a translation of precisely the same Greek words. Though the general reference may be to all people in heaven, the allusion seems to be to the martyred dead of the great tribulation. And he continues about verse 4. The 24 elders first introduced in chapter 4, along with the four living creatures, then fall down and worship God and add their Amen, Hallelujah. The fact that the 24 elders and the four living creatures are introduced as worshipping God in a separate way from the great multitude seems to confirm the earlier suggestion that the great multitude are the martyred dead of the great tribulation who suffered immediately from the wickedness of Babylon in its form just prior to the second coming of Christ, that is the one world government, one world religion. If the 24 elders represent the church, they are witnesses of these events from heaven, even though they have not participated in quite the same way. So what he's saying is, we're not there on the earth we're watching from heaven. We're witnesses. And that's why I believe it's the a great multitude, the great multitude who are singing this. It's their song. They're the ones who are killed by the world system. They're the ones who prayed for God to avenge him and God answered their prayer. And so they're praising God for that. Again, the word Alleluia is praise the Lord. and. It's a command. We are exhorted to praise the Lord. Now it gives us some reasons to praise him. So it says in verse 1, Alleluia, salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to the Lord our God. The definite article is used there. It's the salvation, the glory, the honor, and the power of God. So these are specific acts, specific examples of these attributes of God. So the salvation, what? Salvation is it talking about now? It's talking about the deliverance of the tribulation saints from the evil Babylon commercial and religious systems. And we can apply that to all the saints who have been killed in the ages past as well. And the glory and the honor. So God's moral glory in his judgment of the evil Babylon system brings glory and honor to God as a good and just judge. We'll come back to that in a minute. And the power of our God. So this is the might that he displayed in the execution of the judgment upon the harlot in this case. And in verse 2 it says, For true and righteous are his judgments. So in Revelation 18, the unbelievers, they are mourning the fall of Babylon. But here, God's people celebrate it. That's the difference between those who have their eyes on Jesus and those who don't. When it all comes apart, when it all finishes, when this world system is gone, the people who trusted in it, the people who relied upon it to get their satisfaction, they'll have nothing. 
But if we have our eyes on Christ, looking forward to the eternal, we'll suffer temporarily, but we'll rejoice forever. Now, I just talk about God's righteousness. Because God is a good God, and he's true and righteous in all his judgments, it means that the innocent are always freed, and the guilty are always punished. Everything will be set right, and at this point, everything has been set right. So we may not see justice done here on earth, but God's court is both true and righteous. Justice will be served, every wrong will be set right, and so be patient. And that's difficult because sometimes, you know, we think, well, that's just not fair. But it is fair because God is the judge and he will judge. So Romans 12, 19-21 gives us an exhortation here. It says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So, I just want to point out that the people in the tribulation, the tribulation saints, this was them. They did good to their persecutors. They prayed for their persecutors. It's the same thing that God has asked us to do, Jesus asked us to do as New Testament believers is to pray for those who hurt you, who spitefully use you. Bless them. Leave the revenge to God. God has called us to love people, no matter how they treat us. And verse 2, it says, He has judged the great harlot. And here the focus is on the great works of God and his work in the judgment of the false religious system. And verse 3, it says, Again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The smoke of the city rising up in chapter 18, if you remember that. So this is speaking about the destruction of the commercial system when it was destroyed in a day or in an hour. And in verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. So, so be it. Yes. <laughs> we agree. This is fantastic. So the 24 elders and the four living creatures join in with the worship and they say, Amen, Alleluia. And then we move to the next section, which is praise for the marriage of the Lamb, of Jesus. We are the bride, he is the groom. So I'm just going to cover verses 5 and 6, and we'll get into the whole marriage thing next week. It's an amazing topic, and I don't want to rush it. So, then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So this voice from the throne is probably an angel. And verse 5 is the invitation for all his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great, to start to praise God. So basically at this time, it's everybody praising. It's all the angels. It's all the people, all the glorified people in heaven, both the church and the martyred tribulation saints. And it comes to this climax or summit of praise 
right before Jesus is about to come back. And I've got a quote from David Guzik. This is obviously loud, enthusiastic praise. While it is certainly possible to make praise and worship a self-indulgent focus on our feelings or a disorderly expression of the flesh, there is nothing wrong with loud, enthusiastic praise. And while there is something precious and irreplaceable about quiet times alone with God, there is also something absolutely thrilling about a large number of Christians worshipping God with sincere enthusiasm. So, you know, worship can be fake. Worship can be self-indulgent. Worship can be disorderly if it's not done in the right way. But it doesn't mean that we can't be enthusiastic. So there's things you've got to watch out for. Those extremes. So two quotes from Spurgeon. We ought not to worship God in a half-hearted sort of way, as if it were now our duty to bless God. But we felt it to be a weary business, and we would get it through as quickly as we could, and have done with it, and the sooner the better. That's a pretty dismal way of looking at it, isn't it? (laughs) He continues, No, no, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Come, my heart, wake up, and summon all the powers which wait upon thee. Mechanical worship is easy, but worthless. Come, rouse yourself, my brother, rouse thyself, O my own soul. And Spurgeon's second quote is, Heaven is always heaven, and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays, even bliss has its overflowings, and on that day when the spring tide of the infinite ocean of joy shall have come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of all glorified spirits. We do not know yet, beloved, of what happiness we are capable. So there's always going to be praise in heaven, but this is going to be something that is just going to be beyond imagination. So I'm looking forward to heaven, and I'm especially looking forward to this particular time. Now, I want to talk about praise to finish off, because it's an important thing. My question is, do I praise God with all my heart, or with the right motive? It's a good question to ask ourselves. It's a searching question. When I praise God, am I praising with all my heart, or am I praising with the right motive? So I want to look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 to 15. It says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So here the Bible defines what praise is. It's the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And it puts it in its proper context. So I'm just going to go through these verses in Hebrews 13, 12 15, and this is going to be like our application for today is mainly talking about praise. 
So in verses 12 and 13, it says, Jesus suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So being outside the camp, it means being unclean. It means being rejected. So if our Savior was rejected and his sacrifice performed at the cross, our altar was branded illegitimate, we expect no better. This is David Guzik. Identifying with Jesus often means bearing his reproach, the very thing many are unwilling to do. So if we're going to identify with Jesus, we're going to suffer like he suffered. What did Jesus say in John? If the world hates me, it's going to hate you too. Okay. Now in verse 13, this puts this into the context of the book of Hebrews. Outside the camp, the camp refers to institutional Judaism which rejected Jesus and Christianity. Though these Christians, because the book of Hebrews was written to Christians, though these Christians from Jewish backgrounds were raised to consider everything outside the camp as unclean and evil, they must follow Jesus there. I'll read this application from Spurgeon. It means first, let us have fellowship with him. He was despised. He had no credit for charity or for love. He was mocked in the streets. He was hissed at. He was hounded from among society. If I take a smooth path, or path, I can have no fellowship with him. Fellowship requires a like experience. So listen to what Spurgeon said. If I take a smooth path or smooth path, the easy road, the road without suffering, I can have no fellowship with him. Fellowship requires a like experience. And it reminded me of what Paul said in Philippians 3, 10-11. He's talking about knowing Christ. And he says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And that's what people want. They want to know God and the power of his resurrection. But Paul continues, And the fellowship of his sufferings. Where does the fellowship come? As we suffer with him. Okay, Being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain or arrive at the resurrection from the dead. What's he looking for? He's focusing on his resurrection. He wants a good resurrection. He's not focusing on a good life now. Being conformed to his death, death to our sinful nature, death to our desires, death to our will. We want to be conformed to him. So this is the secret of an intimate relationship with God. Fellowship is only attained or increased through being willing to suffer for Christ. And the only way we can do that is if we have our eyes on eternity. And this is what Hebrews is saying in verse 14 there, chapter 13, verse 14, when it says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. What does it say Abraham sought? He didn't seek a city that was made with hands, but he sought the eternal one made without hands. It says previously in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 12. So the difficult job of bearing his reproach is easier when we remember that the city or society we are cast out from is temporary. Notice that? We are cast out from. We are rejected. Don't be surprised when the world rejects you if you follow Jesus. We seek and belong to the permanent city yet to come, the heavenly city. 
And Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That is, when we are face to face with Christ. So, in bearing his reproach, we will face great difficulty and suffering. The good news is that for those who choose now to bear his reproach, this world is the worst that we will ever have it. But for the cowards who turn their back on Jesus, this life is the absolute best they will ever have it. So for the unbelievers who make it, who live it up in this life, good on them. This is as good as it's going to get for them. Okay, But for us, and we reject the good stuff, so-called, in this life, this is as bad as it gets. The temporary suffering we go through, it's as bad as it gets. And we have so much more to look forward to. Another application from Spurgeon, a very gifted preacher, I love Spurgeon. If you can dwell with the wicked, if you can live as they live, and be hail fellow, well met with the ungodly, it just means they appreciate you and like you. If their practices are your practices, if their pleasures are your pleasures, then their God is your God and you are one of them. There is no being a Christian without being shut out of the world's camp. So I'm going to read that one again. If you can dwell with the wicked, if you can live as they live, and be hail fellow well met with the ungodly, if their practices are your practices, if their pleasures are your pleasures, then their God is your God, and you are one of them. There is no being a Christian without being shut out of the world's camp. So that's a good application for us. Now in verse 15 in Hebrews 13, it says, Therefore, now you know that when you see therefore, we must ask ourselves, what is it therefore? Okay? It's coming to a logical conclusion or application. All right? So here, what is a logical conclusion or application of being willing to suffer for Christ? Well, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. So it's not something we do on our own strength. It's by him. It's Christ living his life in us. Now, I haven't written it down in the notes there, but you can maybe write down Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's by him as we submit to him and his spirit lives in us and controls us and guides us and leads us and empowers us. Then one of the fruits of that is that we continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. So I just want you to notice that it's by him. It's not you must. It's by him. Now, I've got a quote from David Guzik. Because we do have an altar, a place of death, the cross, and we do have a high priest, Jesus, we should always offer sacrifices. Do you understand that? We're a priest, and a priest offers sacrifices. Now, in the old system, they used to offer the bulls and the goats and the sheep and all that kind of stuff. But what's our sacrifice? What are we called to offer? Well, the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. We don't need to offer sheep and cattle. God is asking for our praise. It's the fruit of our lips. And 
the writer to the Hebrews explains several essentials for proper praise. Praise that pleases God is offered by him, that is, Jesus empowers us. And it's on the ground of his righteousness, and it's pleasing to God. Praise that pleases God is offered continually, so it's not just Sunday mornings. Praise that pleases God is a sacrifice of praise, in that it may be costly or inconvenient. We'll come back to that. Praise that pleases God is the fruit of our lips. It's not just what we think. We must speak it, whether it be prose or song. There's lots of ways we can praise the Lord. And I quote from someone called Guthrie, What proceeds from the lips is regarded as fruit, which reveals the character of its source as the fruit of a tree reveals the nature of a tree. So the kind of praise that we produce reveals our heart. And there's a quote from another guy called McLaren, Loving hearts must speak. So first and foremost here, What's our motive for praise? Our love for the Lord, right? And McLaren says, loving hearts must speak. What would you think of a husband who never felt any impulse to tell his wife that she was dear to him? Or a mother who never found it needful to unpack her heart of its tenderness, even in perhaps the inarticulate croonings over the little child that she pressed to her heart? It seems to me that a dumb or mute Christian, a man who is thankful for Christ's sacrifice and never feels the need to say so, is as great an anomaly as either of these I have described. So the husband who never has the impulse to tell his wife that he loves her is like the Christian who doesn't feel that they need to praise God. Or the mother who never wants to tell her child that she cares for the child or loves the child. So, conclusion, application, the sacrifice of praise. It will cost us something. Sacrifice means it will cost us something. It's not going to be easy. God wants us to exercise our faith. Remember Galatians 2.20 I mentioned? I live this life by faith in the Son of God. I have to exercise my faith and praise him before the victory, not just after. And you know what? Sometimes, for some people, there will be no resolution of our problems on this earth. We will stay sick until the day we die. We will stay poor until the day we die. We will be persecuted until the day we die. We will be single until the day we die. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Yet, like the tribulation believers, we are given the outcome. We know what awaits us. There's glory awaiting for us. And everything we want, we will have when we get to heaven. So these tribulation believers, they weren't just praising God in heaven. I believe that they were also praising God on earth. And that's really important to understand. They knew that their reward was not in this life, but rather the next. And that's what it says in Hebrews again. Come back to the Hebrews verse. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. 
Paul prayed three times earnestly to God. God, please heal me. And what did God say? No, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 8-10. What did Paul do? Did he get mad and say, I'm not going to serve God anymore, he's not healing me? No, of course not. He forgot about the healing. He just said, no way, I'm not going to stress about this, I'm not going to focus on this, I'm going to focus on my relationship with God and serving him, despite not being healed. And this is, I haven't written this down, but contentment, okay? We need to be content in our circumstances. We need to accept that this is good for me. Because God only allows us to go through things that are good for us. That will help us to grow. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 tells us that the life of the true believer is marked by suffering and persecution. It says, Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil people and imposters will flourish. They're going to do really well for themselves. The evil people and imposters will flourish. They're going to do well. They're going to get rich, etc. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. Therefore, the key to be able to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God is to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. So, praise in the church today, I, th- I get the impression that a lot of the time it's superficial. I'm superficial sometimes in my own praise. People are happy to praise God when things are going well, when it makes them feel good. It gives them emotional buzz or lift. It's easy to praise when the band is playing, when the lights are low and you get caught up in the voices of others. That kind of praise can easily be selfish and empty. Or, as we said before, mechanical. Why? Because I'm doing it for myself, for my own enjoyment, or because I think I have to become an obligation. But sacrificial praise is when I do it for God's glory and honour. I praise God despite my circumstances. I'm doing it for Him, not for me. And there's a line from a Casting Crown song. It says, And I'll praise you in the storm, and I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, no matter where I am. So our reason to praise God is because He doesn't change, and He's worthy of our praise. God is always worthy of our praise. And it's not just for what he's done, it's for who he is. We praise him for both things. We praise him and worship him for, one, who he is, and what he's done. Now, I want to finish by reading a section from the book of Job. This is the ultimate example of sacrificial worship and praise in the Bible. Okay, So it's Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 22. I don't think anyone has gone through as much as Job has, and still praised him in the storm, in the trial, in the tribulation. So, Job chapter 1, verse 6 to 22. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. So, this is in heaven, and the fallen angels still have access to heaven. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, walking to and fro, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? Notice it's the Lord asked Satan. He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. This is God's testimony of his servant Job. I love this. 
I pray that I can have such a testimony from God too. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out your hand and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now Job used to make sacrifices for his kids. He used to worship God. He used to praise God. When things are going well, Satan's thing here is, ah, it's empty worship. He doesn't mean it. He's only doing it because things are going well. All right, verse 12. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were ploughing, with the donkeys feeding beside them, when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, can you imagine that? Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head, that's an act of mourning, and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. So, again, I just want you to notice, Job praised God before his world fell apart, and he praised God after his world fell apart. So we can know from this that his praise was truly a sacrifice of praise. Even in the good times, his praise was based on faith. And in the hard times, it was faith and courage. He did not get bitter at God. Job looked beyond his circumstances. He lifted up his eyes beyond the trial to see that God was still on the throne and that God was still in control and that God was and will always be worthy of praise. Now, did Job want to praise God? Did he feel like praising God? He got down on his knees. He had to humble himself. He got down on his knees. He humbled himself. He didn't feel like doing it. Praise is not about our feelings. Praise is a decision to give glory to God. It's an exercise of our faith. Will I remember who God is? Will I remember what he's done for me? 
Remember what it says in Hebrews? If our eyes are on the eternal, unchanging reality of heaven, then we can praise God no matter what trial comes our way. However, if we aren't seeking the eternal city, heaven, then our praise will be based on our own circumstances. If things are going well, then we can praise God, but if not, we will tend to be bitter and angry. And one example in the scriptures, the Israelites at the Red Sea. They've got the Egyptians behind them, the water before them, the canyon walls either side of them, and they are ready to stone Moses, and they're complaining, and they're wanting to go back, and they're just bitter, they're angry, they've had it with God, they've had it with Moses, and then God delivers them, and what do they do on the other side? I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Yeah, <laughs> You know, Miriam's song. And the women are banging tambourines and all this stuff, you know, and they're all rejoicing. Well, why didn't they praise God before he split the sea? They could have. That's our choice today. And I just want to come back to our text today, Revelation 19.6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters, and as a sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He is on the throne. So God is always on the throne. And remember that he only allows what is good to happen to us. The world means it for evil. Don't doubt that. The world hates you. Satan hates you. Your human nature hates you. But God means it for good. So trust him. God is worthy of both our praise and trust, both for who he is and for what he has done for us. So Father, thank you for the people in the tribulation. Lord, their witness. Lord, we don't hear anything about them complaining all we hear is they have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb and they put their trust in you. They laid their lives down. They made the ultimate sacrifice and they did it willingly because they had their eyes on the eternal city. Lord, may we have the same heart, Lord, that we're not focused on this world, we're not distracted by the things of this world, but Lord, we will be fully focused on the eternal Lord, living for you, living to be in fellowship with you, being willing to suffer, being willing to die to what we want to do so we can live for what you want to do. And I pray that we will be continually praising you in Jesus' name. Amen.